Hello and welcome everyone. <clears throat> My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. And we're going to do a whole hour of Q&A on licensing. And for those of you who don't know what licensing is, basically you rent your idea to a big company. I say rent because if they don't perform, you get it back. And it's their money. It's their workforce and it's their existing distribution. Pretty damn cool. So they're taking all the risk and doing all the work. But you need to do the work to close the deal with that one company that's going to take it all the way from there. So that's what we specialize in. And you need to know how to do that. A lot of people make a lot of assumptions about how to license a product. And the vast majority of people are very, very wrong about most of their assumptions. Now, some people are right about a percentage of their assumptions about how to license a product to a big company. Um, but it's not enough. You got to do most everything right in order for you to invent right. That's the name of our company, right? And get a licensing deal. If you mess anything up along the way, it can really kill a deal. Not everything, but a lot of things. If you're if you're missing a piece of the puzzle and you're not doing it right, you, you just won't be closing a deal. So we specialize in the business side of licensing. It's kind of boring compared to the ideation, the creation of a new product, but that's what gets products licensed. Inventors all the time, you know, some very creative inventors, they miss out because they don't know this stuff that we're going to talk about here in this hour Q&A. And you could be the best inventor in the world if you don't know how to license the product, if you don't know how to reach out to big companies, if you don't know what to show them and what to say and how to do that, you will never license a product. If you do those things right, and realize that the inventing is about 10% of the process. The other 90% is licensing it to a big company. But then you've dumped it on them. It's on them. You move on, license another product. So fortunately, you don't need to start a business. You don't need to raise money. You don't need to take all the risk that you need to take when you run a business. And quite frankly, retailers don't like one product, one skew companies. They don't want to talk to you. Um, but if you license to a big company, they're not talking to you. They're talking to the company that they license to who might have 50 products, 500 products, thousands of products, and they take that company very seriously. Um, but also, I think there's a very big misperception that why would this big company, I'm not talking about the retailer, the big company that sells to retailers, why would they talk to you? They need you. You know, you're their free research and development department. They only have to pay you if they like your idea, it's a beautiful thing. Licensing is a beautiful thing. You can do this with very, very little financial risk. You gotta put the time in, you gotta know how to do it right, but that's what we specialize here at InventRate. And that's why our students are licensing stuff all the time. And we just don't see a lot of inventors outside InventRate licensing stuff left and right because they're focusing too much on the product and not enough on the process. Now I'm not saying don't focus on your product, of course, you got to focus on your product. But if that's just what you focus on and your sell sheet sucks and your PPA is no good and your list of companies is anemic with two or three companies instead of 20 or 30, and you're not saying the right things when you're reaching out, you're not knowing how to reach out, you're not following up enough, there's so many things you can do wrong. So let's jump in with the first question here and start typing your questions in, guys. Um, Musta said, uh, that's their name or their handle. And you guys feel free to type in your name. If you don't type in your name, I'll just read your handle, um, no matter how silly it is. Some of you chose a handle eons ago, and you're like, I didn't even know that was my handle. I would never pay attention to it on, on YouTube. 
Musta said, hi, Andrew. What are the most important questions that we should ask in the first meeting on Zoom or a phone call with a company or a potential licensee? So I think a lot of people have this misperception like you're going to do a deal on this call or this grand misperception, which is such a misperception that they're showing interest and now you'll have a signed deal in two weeks. I think I had maybe one student ever do a deal that quick. Any deal that happens that quick is probably a deal you don't want to sign. There's probably something really, really wrong. If a company wants to have you sign a deal within days or something, it's probably not a real deal. Um, so it takes a little while. So getting back to Musta's question, on that first call, you're not trying to close a deal. The, the most important thing you can do on the first call is establish rapport to help them realize that you're not a wacky inventor, that you're not gonna be a liability to them. Because if they show your product around the company and then you're gonna embarrass them and email other people in the company and do weird stuff, that's not worth it for them, okay? So they're interviewing you as a person. Now, there's this misperception that you need to be like a captain of industry or you need to really know what you're doing. No, you don't. But you need to be easy enough to work with. If they think you're, a whacked out inventor that you're going to argue that you want to make it green and they want to make it purple. And you're going to start an argument about that. Well, then they're going to go, I don't care how great this product is. It doesn't matter. I don't want to deal with this inventor. I don't want them to embarrass me right in front of their, their coworkers or their boss. Right? So one of the most important things, which is a very easy thing to do, unless you're wacky inventor, if you're a little off, that's okay, but you can't be wacky. You can't be difficult. You can't be nutso going, I want a half a million dollars up front or some crap like that. Okay. So the most important thing you're doing, Musta, is you're establishing rapport that you're easy enough to talk to and work with. And that's just being a normal, kind human being. Okay. Um, the other thing that I think people don't understand is they feel like they're licensing to the company and you are licensing to the company, but you're working with a person. You reached out to a marketing manager most of the time. If it's a very small company, it might be the CEO. Usually it's a marketing manager or somebody. And you, you need to think about what their role is in the company. You need to think about them, but they're a person just like you and me, okay? Because if you make it the company, could be a really big company. Maybe they have 5,000 products. That's intimidating. Bring it down in your own mind to, I'm working with this person. This man or this woman is going to be my superman or superwoman within the company to help me do this deal. So establishing rapport with that person, very first thing, help them realize that you're somebody they can work with. Because before, maybe you're just an email and you're a product, but you're not a person yet. I joke about this. Until you've had a conversation with them, you're not real. You're this fictitious inventor that came up with a product that's intriguing to them, but you're not a real person yet. So believe it or not, that's a big thing that you're establishing on that first call, okay? Also, the other thing that's really, really good is to get them talking about the product. When people talk about themselves, this is just for relationships, they feel like they know you better and you have, may have said nothing about yourself. I'm not saying you do this on this call, but I'm giving you an example in relationships. Let people talk about themselves and they will feel like they know you better. Okay. Now, in this particular case, let them talk about themselves 
and let them talk about the product. So they feel like they know you better. Now they feel like you're maybe you're not a coworker, but you're you, they they've they've had a conversation with you, and they're getting now excited about the product. It's one thing to be quiet, to be mute, to see an intriguing product and have thoughts about it. But it's another thing to verbalize it to the inventor, like, oh, you know, yeah, I think we could put this here and put this there. I'm a little concerned about this. And then you start talking about, oh, well, we could change that to do like that. Oh, yeah, okay. And so now you're working together. You're partners, you're a team, you know? And they're like thinking, oh, I could work with this person. And, oh, I'm getting even more excited. There's nothing like getting them talking about the product with you to get them even more excited about the product. Now, not everybody's that way, but a good percentage of people that way. So now you're getting them talking about. So these probably aren't things that you guys are even thinking about. I wonder what I accomplished on the call. I want to know the royalty rate and this and that. And those are all little things you could talk about later. Now, sometimes you know they'll ask you, what do you want? Now, usually they won't on that first call, but they'll ask you, what do you want? You go, well, I'm looking for a reasonable royalty per unit. So when you get paid, um, that's that's when I would get that royalty. Of course, their knee-jerk reaction is going to be, and this isn't something I would bring up on the call. I'm just telling you if they ask, this is what I would say. Um, and then, of course, the reaction is, oh, reasonable royalty per unit. What is that? Oh, what would that be? And you'd say, well, it all depends on what you're going to do with the product. I would need to, at some point, I could send you a term sheet but I would need to know what you're going to do with the product. And that might get them to talk about, oh, we're going to put it in Bed Bath & Beyond. And I would love, I could totally see this at Macy's and I could see this at Target or get them talking about it. Okay. So the other thing on that very first call, Musta, is they will say stuff on that call they shouldn't say. And what I mean by that is on those early calls, they'll say stuff that um, is going to help you in the negotiation. You know, and and so you want to get them talking about all those things and you're not going to use it against them later, but you're going to put it back to them and go, well, you know, you said you could do this. And so it's only a percentage of those royalties, you know, and you can say things like that, you know, so it maybe they bragged about where all the places they are going to put it. But if you have a conversation like three or four weeks in, they might be a little bit more guarded because they talk to their boss and other bosses. Yeah, I really like this. And now they're holding their cards a little closer to their chest. Um, so you really want them to get them talking and get them excited about the product on that first call. That's the most important thing. Where are you going to place the product? Did you have any concerns about the product? Because you want and and also the other big thing is what are your next steps? Now realize that companies, most companies don't have this formal step-by-step process. We have a 10-step system for how and steps for how you do everything, how you're going to guide them. But the most important thing to realize is that if you don't do at least half the guiding, the deals will almost always fizzle out. People are like, well, they'll they'll just tell me what to do. Bullshit. If you rely on them to tell you what to do, you'll almost never do a deal. Okay. You need to be asking at least 50% of the questions, if not more. And you need to know what kind of questions to ask. Now, based on the situation, the type of the product, kind of things that you think they might be concerned about, things they bring up, our students will talk to our negotiation coach and their licensing coach about how to move this forward. You know, but on that first call, if you can discover what their concerns might be about the product, because they like the product doesn't mean they don't have some concerns, and what they think the next steps are. 
So they may have next steps. They might, maybe they license 20 products, right? And the marketing manager you talk, you're talking to, um, he's, you ask them, so what's your process typically? And they're like, well, I mean, this is just an example. It could be anything. But we want to get some quotes overseas to see if we can make this reasonably. I think it can, but we got to confirm that or whatever it is at different stages in the process. And based on what they say, you're going to react certain ways, but you're also going to ask them, ask them some key questions. So it really depends on the situation and everybody. So you might have a marketing manager and he's done 20 licensing deals. Okay. And you might, or you might have another company where the company has done 10 licensing deals, but the marketing manager who liked your product has literally never done a licensing deal before came from another company two years ago. It just hasn't, he hasn't seen something he's interested in. People don't typically send him things, whatever, but your, your, your product catched his, caught his eye. So now he's interested. So don't be surprised if that marketing manager doesn't know what the hell they're doing. And so like, I'll give you an example. So our, our uh, negotiation coach, Paul says, well, and they don't say this often, but when they do, Sometimes companies will say, send me a patent or send me a prototype or send me both. Okay. Now here's an interesting thing. What they're saying isn't always what they're saying. So, and I know it's an annoying thing to say, but it's true. So Paul told me that in his experience, and I've experienced this too, back when I was the negotiation coach, literally half the time that they say, and most of the time they don't ask this up front. Okay. I always think it's a red flag or it's just somebody that's clueless. But they'll say, send me your patent prototype. Literally half the time when they say that, and then you 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 turn around, you, you say, no, let's get on a phone call. I'd be happy to talk to you about this or that, but let's get on a call. I got some questions for you, probably some questions for me. When they say, send me your patent and or prototype, sometimes they say both. And you get on the phone half the time, 50% of the time, they don't ask you about either. They didn't know how to start the conversation. Now, other percentage of the time, they might feel like it's relevant might have a conversation or negotiation coach guides or students on what to say in different situations. But that's a perfect example that you can't let them guide you completely. You need to guide them as much as they're guiding you. Now, I'm not saying you're fighting with them. You might half answer it, take it a little different direction. I have students all the time like, holy crap, that worked, Andrew. You know, because we're absolute experts at that. Licensing attorneys are not experts at that. They want to get into the contract too soon where you haven't discussed some of the terms. And then they just want to start arguing and then they'll cost you thousands of dollars and kill the deal on top of it. We're a lot more level headed about it. I'm sure there are some licensing attorneys out there that are level headed about it, but you don't want a licensing attorney talking pre-contract and you don't want them even talking about the contract, except for maybe behind the scenes on advanced contract. With our students, Paul, our negotiation coach helps. Students not signing anything with the company. So you can talk about, go back and forth, change that stuff up in a much less abrasive way than an attorney would. If if every time one of our students got interest, we said, oh, you need to go to a licensing attorney, they would kill 80% of the deals that Paul or negotiation coach helps them close. You know, but I also give our coaches tremendous credit. You know, there was a time where the the we were always you know, inside of InventRight, when one of our students licenses something, every, the, the coach is to send an email to everybody saying, hey, my student licensed this or that. And everybody's like, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. And, and Paul was getting all this praise because he was helping them close it. And then we said, well, you know, it really should be the coach because the coach got you 
to there. He got you into the companies. Paul is helping it close out from there as a negotiation coach. So it's extremely valuable getting it to the deal, not just the deal to close them. Very, very valuable. And it it requires being very, very persistent, and but polite and following up sometimes five, six, seven times before they get back to you. Most inventors would never do that. They don't reach out to 20, 30 companies. If they would reach out to two or three with terrible marketing materials, and then they wondered, they thought that was an effort. That's not an effort. There's a really solid reason why our students license stuff when other inventors don't. It's because we make them do the work. And they said they signed up for that. They want to do the work. But most inventors do not do the work. They file patents and they make prototypes, and that's it. And then their effort in reaching out to companies, the way they do it, what they send, how they send it, who they send it to, is very, very wrong the vast majority of the time, and they're not persistent enough. So, um, Musta, hopefully that gives you some clarity. It's, it's like a, I mean, I didn't give you like a bunch of little details. I give you the mindset. So never feel like you're trying to close a deal on that first call ever, ever. You're trying to establish rapport, see where they stand and have a conversation and be a freaking human being. Okay. All right. So um, Jay Bell said, um, hey, Andrew, uh, Jay Bell here. You said before, this isn't a get rich quick deal. You mentioned students that earn seven figures like on the whiskey glass, but it's hard to find any other income quotes. Can you share some licensing deals? Maybe um, ones that are in 30 or 200K or even 5K to give us a better idea of income potential. Thanks in advance for another great show. So no, I can't really because we aren't asking our students, how much did you earn? We're not then like printing a giant check that they could hold up. That's freaking rude. You know, I mean, I'm not going to go back to our students and go, how much did you earn? How much are you earning this year, that year? How much did you earn during the entire? I'm not doing that. That's like, that's like, I don't know. That's like people selling, um, make a, make millions of dollars selling on Amazon or, or um, get rich quick with Google AdWords or, or at least get rich quick schemes or real estate or crap like that. Um, that's not real, you know? Um, so now could I, I could go to all our students and I could say exactly how much have you made? We could do that. Do we do that? No. And I was trying to be really honest, I think in other streams that, it can vary dramatically. I mean, and so I'm not going to give you specifics and hold up this product or in this, this product or in this. That's that's not right. Now, Ryan, I share his story with the whiskey glass because he's a cool guy, but I don't want to go sharing every individual inventor's story and saying this is how much they earn. That's not right. That's not a that's not, I'm not, I wouldn't be respectful. I know Ryan, he's a cool dude. I don't think he minds me mentioning that. But I'm not going to go mentioning that. So, yeah, I mean, you could license to a little, let's say it's a gag novelty gift and it's a mom and pop operation. They have um, a, a husband and wife and one employee and they sell these novelties and they sell them for like a year or two at most. And they always want a new thing. Your royalties might be like on what you wrote there. Like, hey, I'm only be 5K over the entire life of the product. And then somebody else is earning 200K. And if they earn that over five years, that's a million dollars. And it literally is that big of a range. Um, and, you know, it's it's a total cliche. You guys heard me say this before, but you do what you love. The money will come. 
if you're just doing inventing and licensing just for the money, you probably will not be successful. When I see people that are doing it because they're passionate about it, that's when the money will come. Um, and it is a cliche, I know, but it is. But no, I'm not going to like pull it off because I don't know. I don't know exactly how much each person earned, but it is a wide range. What I will say is, yeah, you could be earning 200K in royalties on a product. And if that's five years, that's a million dollars. But then on you got another product, maybe you're earning like really, it's just like $10,000 a year and it sells for six years at $60,000. Okay, well, you didn't have to do any work. You've dumped it on the company. You give plenty of time to license other products. And let, let's say, let's say that would be really low in my opinion, but Let's say you you licensed um, three more products like that. Well, $60,000 times three is $180,000. And you didn't have to risk your money. You didn't have to do the work. You know, you, you didn't need to quit your day job. They're doing all that and they're sending you the royalty checks. Now you need to do the work to get it in to that company to do that licensing deal. And that is work and that's what we specialize in. So, but I think that it's a sickness in America that people think there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money fast and being smart about things. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not being judgmental. But to think that everybody's going to earn a million dollars a year um, on one product, no, that's not true. Could it happen with some products? Yes. Could you become a millionaire, make a million dollars, if that's what a millionaire is? I don't know. Off of one product? Yes. I would say most inventors, that's not the case off one product. That's going to be off multiple products. Now, also, I don't think there's anything wrong with being really selective about your products and going, hey, I have money goals here. I want to earn this amount of much money in the next five years. So I'm going to pick my projects carefully. I find that most of our students don't do that with their first product. They're just passionate about the idea. And whatever amount of money it makes is whatever amount of money it makes. But when they work on their second or third product, they become much more business-like about it. So we are there to empower them to work on that first product, which may or may not be a big moneymaker. They may or may not license, but they will understand the process and now they can repeat it over and over and over again. So it's, it's, it's work, you know, and you have to put the time in. So no, you're never gonna see me holding this up. This made this much, this made this much, this made this much. I'm, I'm already thinking maybe it was a mistake to even hold up Ryan's. I thought it was just motivational, but I, whenever I say that, I'm very realistic about it. You know, I'm, I'm saying, look, you could license a little gag novel to give it might be $5,000 over the entire life of the product. You know, now would I recommend to continue to work on those types of products? Not really. You know, it could be a novelty that if with a decent sized company that does really, really well, one of our coaches just licensed another novelty to um, Fred and friends, a really fun company. They make kind of like, it could be something for the kitchen or elsewhere. It has functionality, but it's kind of fun. You know, um, I think like one of their products just off the top of my head, it was a, uh, a wooden stirring spoon that was also a drumstick, you know, stuff like that, you know, and they're kind of a little bit bigger for a novelty company. Um, but even though they're bigger, I, usually novelty doesn't sell huge. Um, fads can sell huge, but those are hard to predict. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, I'm just always about being really transparent with that stuff. Um, Leaf said, hey, Andrew, two questions. How would you protect and license a board game with patents or some other legal means? Yeah, board games are great. You'll be, Leaf, you'll be very pleasant, pleased to hear 
that you would just do copywriting the rules. Um, there's this gentleman, Andy Daniels. He has a company called Ingenuity Games. And I haven't talked to the guy in like 15 years, but I don't know if he even still has the company. I haven't looked it up. But I remember he spoke to my inventors group back in the day. I've been running InventRight 23 years now, but so got it, maybe more, maybe 20 years. But he's like, you know, board games are great because you just copyright the rules. And, you know, there's the, the patent and trademark office, which is patents and trademarks. And then the copyright office of the Library of Congress. But technically, when you just give a speech or you write something, it's automatically copyrighted. So you don't need to file it with the Library of Congress, but you can if you want. And you can actually file a whole package of things with the Library of Congress under a copyright. And it's very, very affordable. So, um, and what you're doing is you're copywriting the rules. And copyright is way easier to enforce than patents. Everybody thinks patents the holy grail, but patents need to be interpreted. Copyright really doesn't. Somebody knocked off your board game and they use the same words in their instructions. It's a judge can look at that and it's, it's much, much clearer, much easier to go after people with copyright violations than with patent violations. So Leaf, you've really got um, a lot of great things going on for you if you got a board game, because basically you can just copyright the pools, rules, put the little C around it. You can file with the Library of Congress. You can look it up, Library of Congress, filing a copyright if you want to. I think it's kind of overkill sometimes, but you can do that if you want, because they officially have it on file. Um, but I think you could even package that. Let's say you're working on three board games. You could package it all and then send all those copyrights with one fee, I believe. You need to check on that because our students aren't doing copyrights that often. And then it's easier to enforce too. Um, but also in addition, board game companies are not in the habit of knocking inventors off. So that's an additional form of protection. Um, but realize with board games, you think it's all new and novel. And this gentleman that I talked to, Andy Daniels from Ingenuity, when he spoke to my inventor association way back in the day when I had one, he said, oh, my God, I'm going to shoot myself in the head if I see another version of Chinese checkers, you know, because apparently everybody has different versions of Chinese checkers. So, you know, if you're doing board games, you need to kind of like know the lay of the land, what's out there and stuff. And if you're kind of clueless about it and you show it to a company and you're not understanding what else is in the space of that same kind of board game, then, you know, you might get a rejection. You don't know why. And they might not have time to tell you. So study the marketplace is what I'm saying. But you're pretty good. You could just do uh, copywriting the rules. The patent really only comes in if it's a, you know, the old game I played. I'm 53. So that old game Mousetrap, which has a lot of moving parts. So if there's a lot of moving parts and functionality, you could get a patent on it. But most board games don't. You're just going to be copywriting the rules. Okay. So I went into great detail there. Most of you probably don't have board games. But, you know, most people say, oh, that's interesting. Now I know if I ever do a board game. Uh, let me page down here. Uh, my two cents, who's a regular here. Um, my idea can be made with plastic parts, except for one. It will need felt glued onto a bendable part. Who and how do I find someone reliable to tell me the cost and, and will it make the idea too expensive? Um, I don't think most of the time you need to do that level of research. I think it is a valid concern to go, is what I'm doing here going to make this item too expensive? You know, there's the kitchen sink inventors. No, they're not inventing kitchen sinks. It's like they have a product and they just tack this on and this on and this on and this on or Swiss army knives inventors, you inventors, you know, they just 
and I'm not talking about inventors invent Swiss Army knives. I'm talking about like, here's my product, but they just put all this stuff on it. It's like, oh my God, you, you can't put all that on there. Um, you need to remove some stuff so it can, what's reasonable? Look at other products in the space so you can keep that cost down, right? So very, very relevant point in needing to keep the cost down. But most of the time, you can just look at products that are somewhat in the same space it could be in a different industry, even same material, like it's got some felt glue to it. You talked about that. Maybe it was a not. And you go, well, the, God, that's selling for 1995. I'm good. I, I know that mine's going to be under 1995, and that's more or less the same amount of material. And it's got some felt on it. So I'm not worried about that or whatever it is that you're concerned about that's going to increase the manufacturing cost. You can get quotes from contract manufacturers. They won't take you seriously most of the time because they're like, you know, I used to sell back in former life. God, I don't know what it was, 21, 22 or something like that. Um, CNC machining centers, computerized machining centers. And I would sell them machinists. They were $50,000, a half million dollars. And they only really wanted to talk to me. They'd be nice when they had a big, a big order, right? And they needed more machines. But they would show me stuff. They would go, hey, you know, here's this thing I got from this inventor. Like, oh, this is ridiculous. I don't think this guy has a pot to piss in. And, and I'm just going to give them a ridiculous quote to make them go away. And machinists would tell me that. And you have to keep that in mind that um, you're not going to get reasonable quotes for manufacturing something. If a big company goes there, you're going to get, they're going to give them a very different quote that they give you. So if you get some quotes to manufacture in the U.S. and you give it to a potential licensee who would, then, who would be making it in China, you could kill the deal right there. So... I really wouldn't worry about it too much. I would use common sense though. It is extremely valid that you should ask yourself, can this be made and can it be made at a reasonable price? But usually by using common sense and looking at other products, it might be in the same space, different space, same material, materials, you know, like typically um, like silicone is more expensive, right? So if you're making something out of silicone, like look at if something, I have no idea what, what material this is out of, but, but let's, let's say it's, it is out of, of silicone. You go, well, what's, what else is out of silicone and about this, this size, this is not silicone, but um, mm -hmm. it's a rubber, but let's say it's a pot holder. So if you notice pot holders, silicone are typically this price range and cloth are typically this price range. And then you go, well, does it need to be silicone? Yeah, it does. Okay, so that's going to be the price range. So you can do that and you won't completely know. They will tell you, oh, you know, we like this, but we don't feel like it can be done cost effectively. And this, well, what are the issues you could say? Maybe they got some quotes and they're like, well, this and this. And you're like, hmm, let me think on that. And you're the inventor and you come up with a solution. So don't feel like you need to have all your ducks completely in a row. But at the same time, asking yourself the question, can it be made and can it be made at a reasonable price? Most of the time, what we tell our students, if you're 70% sure by looking at other stuff, go for it, okay? But you, you, you're, you're not going to get reasonable quotes because they're going to be like, this guy's not going to, or this gal's not going to be giving me a bunch of business, you know? Um, also, she said, happy belated Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, oh, the other part of your question was, or do I just go ahead and pitch the idea and let companies tell me it's too expensive? I think 
I should know about what it will cost so as not to waste their, their and my time. Yeah, but sometimes it's like on the fence. So sometimes it's just obvious. Like I'll look at it and I'll go, what are you doing here to the inventor? That's going to be like ridiculously expensive. And other times I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think you're good. But we might not be, but go ahead and pitch it. Because if you're if you're spending, you know, 75 bucks on a provisional, a few bucks on a virtual prototype and then a sell sheet, you're not mortgaging your house and home in order to pitch it to a company. You just won't know sometimes. Get them to do it and they'll get the quotes from the big contract manufacturers that they work with. And then you'll know. And that might provide you with information to license it to somebody else if you even come up with a fix, but they're not still not satisfied. And it can you can get them to do that for you. Most of the time, that's what our students do. Um, okay, let's see what else we got here. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, Edgar and Jess. Hi, Andrew. I'm pretty far along in the process as the potential company has already built a set of prototypes and keeps telling me they love the idea. How can I encourage them to start discussing terms? Well, Edgar and Jess, I would get on. I would drop them an email, say, you know, do you have 10 minutes to talk on the phone? Um, and, you know, I got some questions for you. You probably got some questions for me. That shows that they're serious. You need to move it past this. They, they bothered to make a prototype on this. And really, to be honest with you guys, if you you should have done that before they started working on a prototype. That's fine. I love that they're spinning their wheels. They're, they're doing some work. They're investing in the project. That's fantastic. But if you did that, and I'm not saying that wasn't the case, and you never talked to them, that was a mistake. Now, Edgar and Jess, maybe you had talked to them. They started moving forward, and now you're just trying to move the deal forward. So drop them an email. Say, I like 10 minutes. It's so glad that the prototype's coming along. But I need you know 10 minutes of your time. I got some questions for you. You probably got some questions for me. Let's set up a time to talk. Would such and such your time work, given their time zone? Would any of these times, and if those times don't work, can you suggest a time that would work? Just do that. It's just, and if they don't want to get on the phone with you, it's kind of a red flag. They're kind of playing their cards close to their chest. And, it, you know, but you, you have to try. So that's what I would do. Um, uh, James said, I'm having trouble getting the finances for a prototype. So I do... So I do proof of concept. Any advice? Yeah. One of the things, James, maybe you're new here, is we always say you're not selling your patent. You're not selling your prototype. You're selling the benefits of your product. So if you have a sell sheet, a one-page advertisement for your product, you can have a virtual prototype in there. And that you'll be just fine. Who said you needed a prototype? Why do all inventors think they need a prototype? That's not what you're selling. Sometimes it's very hard for an inventor that's creative but doesn't have the skills to make a prototype. We have some of our students that are professional industrial designers. They're basically, they've been trained to design products and they went to school for that. The vast majority of our students don't have that. It could be a housewife or a plumber or whoever, and they can't draw a stick figure. And they don't feel like they can cannibalize something they bought at the store, which is a great technique. And, and it's obvious what the product is. Get a virtual prototype done. We do them for our students. It looks beautiful. This is what it looks like. Here's the benefits. What you're selling is benefits, not a prototype. You know, if you're fairly certain they can do it, but you're just having a hard time making the prototype, don't do it. Just show them the benefits. See if they're interested in the benefits. You know, I mean, we're we're like a broken record here. We say that all the time, but there's always a new inventor that doesn't know that. People are like, oh, thank you, Andrew. I didn't realize I could do that. 
Sometimes people think they need an issued patent. They need a patent before they can they can work on their product. Hell no, you can spend 75 bucks on a provisional patent. Um, so hopefully that was helpful, James. Yeah, it, Miss J says, James, um, did you Google angel investor or grants? No, Miss J, he doesn't need that. You don't need a grant or an angel investor to make a prototype to license it. You don't need to raise money when you're licensing because that big company, it's their money, their workforce, and their distribution. He doesn't need an angel investor or grants. Now, there is an exception. Sometimes you do. I've had a few inventors, really bright people. They have like a new energy invention, right? And it's not a dog toy or a, or automotive aftermarket product or something for the kitchen or whatever where they could look at a rendering of it and go, oh, yeah, we can make that. It's like a new technology that's going to make things more energy efficient. And the inventor believes their theory will work, but nobody's going to take them seriously unless they have a working prototype of this energy-related invention. And they're going to need $100,000, $200,000 to make that prototype. In that case, yes, you might need an angel investor or somebody that can invest in it or get a grant to work on that technology. But 98% of the inventors I talk to, that is not the case. You don't need that. I don't think it's appropriate or necessary. And you just want to get in front of companies and see what they say about the benefit of your product, right? Because if you have a new kitchen gadget and you don't have it all figured out, but they can see, wow, that's, yeah, I see what you did there. And they can figure it out. Great. But, and they go, yeah, we, we can get some quotes and their contract manufacturers like, oh yeah, we could do this or that. Or maybe they talk about it or you talk about it with them. But if it's an energy invention and it requires lots of new technology and to pay some other engineers and stuff like that, they're just bunging a balk at that. You could sell the benefits there, but they're going to be like, well, prove it. You know, maybe you're just wacky, you know. Um, but 98% of the time, that's not the case with most products that I see. And whenever I give advice, guys, it's... Um, it's not, we're not saying this is how it is 100% of the time, but the majority of the time. So don't say, oh, what he said has to apply to me. It may not because I don't, I don't see your product, right? But that's the benefit of having a coach, you know? Um, and that's, if you guys are interested in getting coaching, go to InventRight and click on contact us. Sylvie and Dan are super friendly. You can talk to them about our coaching programs. Um, Ray Ray said, is it too late in the year to go ahead and get a patent pending application done? It doesn't matter when you file a provisional patent. I'm assuming you're talking about a provisional. You file at any time of the year. Um, also, you know, on a related subject, Ray Ray, um, every year our students and the public says, oh, you know, we got Thanksgiving, we got Christmas. Maybe it's not worth it to reach out this time of year. And I'm like, bullshit. I've experienced this over 23 years. Our students license just as much in November and December as any other time of year. It's a little different, but this is what how it works. Um, some people are on vacation. They took a two-week vacation. You're emailing, they're not responding. Other people are there, and I find people are really kind of cool this time of year. They might be putting their feet up on the desk. You know, they just want in case their boss emails them and they see something and they're a little bit more talkative. So I see it as a wash. Some people are on vacation and are not going to respond. Other, but they're not going to be on vacation for two months, guys. I mean, come on. Sometimes people are just looking for excuses. Um, 
So they're, they're, they're on vacation and not responding, but then other people are a little bit more friendly than they normally are, a little bit more conversational, have a little bit more time because they're not crunched with, with projects, some of them. So I see it as a wash. You're just as likely to license. Okay, maybe not on Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or New Year's Day, but any other day, I wouldn't stop for a second reaching out to companies. And that's 23 years of seeing our students do that and seeing that happen. Um, so do not, and that's not what Ray Ray was saying. Ray Ray was saying, is it too late in the year to go ahead and do a patent pending application? You do that anytime. So no, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But related subject, people go, should I bother trying to reach out to companies in November, December? Hell yeah, no difference than the rest of the year. Do not hold up in any way, shape or form. Don't send, well, you can send something to somebody on Christmas. Don't expect a response on Christmas day or something, but perfectly, perfectly fine. Don't hold back. Keep going. Um, I can only imagine if all our students took November and December off, that'd be messed up. Uh, we don't let them do that. Well, they can do whatever they want, but we, we you know, but they, you know, they're, they're serious. So they're not going to do that. Um, well, yeah, Willetta said, when copywriting, do I copyright the method of manufacture? No, Willetta. Earlier, I was referring to the gentleman that said he had a board game and you're going to copyright the rules. You can't copyright a method of manufacturing. You're copywriting words, okay, the rules. And you can copyright instructions for something, but most people are not going to be doing copywriting as the main method of protection. People that do board games do, the rest of you are gonna be, for the most part, filing a provisional patent application. So no, you do not copyright a method of manufacture. I'm glad you asked. I was more giving an exception, not a rule, because the gentleman had a board game, okay? So you're gonna copyright the rules of the board game. Now you can copyright instructions and all sorts of stuff, everything, your sell sheet's copyrighted, all that sort of thing. Um, but, and it's all, you can just put a little C, that's all you have to do, but, um, and you can copyright the instructions for a product too. Um, but really you, you're getting a provisional patent application the vast majority of the time. And by the way, anything I share with you guys today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Whenever we get a little quasi-legal, I always throw out that disclaimer. Um, hmm. Okay, this is an interesting one. Miss V, hi, Andrew, please explain the difference between an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, and a CDA, concept disclosure agreement. One of the things, first of all, I've never seen a, um, a CDA before, ever, so I don't know what that means. Um, but I've seen people, I've seen companies send NDAs to a student and at the top, it said non-disclosure agreement. But when you read the words that are in the non-disclosure agreement, it was a non-confidentiality agreement. So I don't care what you put at the top. It's what's in it. So a, con a concept disclosure agreement, it, it doesn't mean anything. An NDA doesn't mean anything. It technically means non-disclosure agreement, but it's, it's completely invalidated and irrelevant if what is in it. So for instance, I've seen NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and basically the, the body of it is saying, we're not gonna keep anything confidential. Well, that's not really a non-confidential, non-disclosure agreement, right? An NDA, it's not really what it is. 
So don't be fooled by the subject. I don't find that companies are trying to fool inventors. You have to read through the agreement and make sure you're okay with the terms. If it says like, we'll agree to pay you a maximum of $5,000, but never any more for this. And we could just go ahead and use it or whatever weird crap a few companies do. Very few companies do that sort of thing, but occasionally they do. So that's why you need to read through any submission agreement um, or submission form that any company is having you sign. A lot of them, you just reach out to a market manager they're like, yes, yeah, send it over. There's no agreement. And you filed your provisional patent and you're creating a paper trail. And that's what you use as protection. Um, James said, I've tried grants, but I haven't been able to get one and have, haven't tried angel investors yet. Well, the big question, James, is do you need a grant? Do you need a prototype with what I said? I don't know what your product is. Um, uh, how, and he said, how would, how would you suggest going about working with an angel investor? Um, do you have a good source I can look into? Well, here's, here's, the, here's what's messed up, guys. People watch that silly show Shark Tank, okay? And, and you, know, you get grandma and everybody, you have a good idea. If you're an inventor, you probably heard this before. And they go, oh, that's a good idea. You should go on Shark Tank. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't. Like Shark Tank is a freaking TV show, okay? So the purpose of Shark Tank is not for you to sell your invention. The purpose of Shark Tank is to provide entertainment so they can feed advertisements to their audience. That is the purpose of Shark Tank. It's the saddest thing in the world that somebody would think the only way they can bring a product to market is through Shark Tank. That's sad, okay? Now, what does Shark Tank provide? Well, this shark is going to provide you with the money to start a business from scratch. To start a business from scratch, a one product, one SKU company. What do I always say about one product, one SKU companies? Retailers don't like you. Now, and it means very little. Oh, but I was on Shark Tank and I got this shark investor. They really don't care that much. It might give you a little leverage, but you know, when you license to a big company, let's say they have 500 products and this particular, their, their uh, manufacturer's rep, the company you license to is calling out the buyer at a particular store and they already have 12 products in that store. Who are they going to listen to? Some guy that was on Shark Tank once, six months ago that everybody's forgotten about and has one product. They're worried that they're properly funded and they're going to deliver it a good product, quality product. They don't know how to set up their skis. They don't know how to set anything. They don't, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Or would they rather buy from that company they already have 12 products with and have a relationship with that manufacturer's rep from the company you license to, okay? What's more attractive? When you compare the two, licensing is way sexier than any stupid TV show. Now, I'm going to give Shark Tank credit. What I like about the show, which I don't watch anymore. It, it, I can't watch it. It's painful. Um, but what I like about the show, cause it's always like, oh, do they get the money? Don't they get the money? Which is great TV. I don't think what we do will be as, as exciting a TV. We've been candidates for multiple TV shows that people wanted to pitch their approach and have us be on the show, Stephen and or myself. And, and they never really pan out cause Hollywood's just full of flakes. Right. Um, and that's just the game, you know, it's like licensing. You gotta show more than one product before you license it, but it's like a thousand times worse with Hollywood. Okay. Um, so, you know, 
And on that show, it's all about the money. Oh, but I can't do it because I don't have the money. Well, we've reviewed, we've removed all those roadblocks. We're saying you don't need the money. You don't need a patent. You don't need a prototype. You just need to show the benefit of your product. It's going to be their money and their distribution and their workforce, you know, their employees. So it's way more attractive than Shark Tank. So let's not, um, let's not assume that if you raise money, everything will fall into place because it's totally not true. Now, if James has this product that it's like, oh yeah, nobody would be interested unless he can prove the product works because it's so incredibly complicated. Okay, but I don't find that to be true for like literally 98% of the inventions I see. There's always a small percentage. So, but this is a great topic. I'm glad we talked about this. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with starting a business and selling a product yourself, but most inventors, they get themselves in their own head and they're like, oh God, this isn't what I wanted to do, you know? And with licensing, you don't have to start a business. So there's no right or wrong. It's what's right for you. But once I illustrate the difference between the two, people, most inventors are like, oh, I want to, I want to license. That's what I want to do. Um, let's see. Sorry, I paged up too quick and I lost my place. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay. Um, Richard says, can you share, be a student of the program or InventRight program and share the course with your spouse or child? Um, I heavily encourage, um, we have a lot of uh, friends that'll join together. They're working on the same product together or a spouse. Or we've had, um, I remember we had two fathers that I think one daughter was like, 10 or 11 and the other daughter was like seven and they both licensed their daughter's products with them. They were on the calls with the, with the coach um, within like a month or two of each other. It was a trip. It was really, really cool. I heavily encourage you. If you have somebody in your family that's interested to show up to the coaching calls with the coach and your family member, I heavily encourage that. That's fantastic. That's, and, but you have to be working on the same projects. It's not like, Oh, well, you know, uh, my wife will be calling you one day and I'll be calling. No, you got to be on the same calls, you know, for the same product um, or products, you know, if, that you're working on together. But yeah, I highly encourage that. We wouldn't charge you another membership for that. No, no way. Um, uh, let's see. Alex, is hardware profit a profitable niche? Do I need professional 3D model for a patent and 3D model enough for licensing? Um I don't know if, Alex, I don't know what you mean by hardware. I don't know if you mean, um, I don't know if you mean computer hardware or if you mean uh, hammers, nails, um, um, drills. Um, maybe if you could type in real quick, if you're still here, what kind of products you're talking about. So um, I'll say that that hardware, um, products you would buy at a Home Depot or a Lowe's are power tools, the companies that make power tools little bit harder to license to. Some of them, they're, they're, they'll open their doors and they'll close the doors and open doors. We have students that, you know, that certain companies that close their doors, but then they went around the way we teach them to do on LinkedIn and a marketing manager was like, yeah, I'll take a look at it. So, but I would, is a, a hardware product a little bit harder to license than, um, than let's say a kitchen gadget? Yeah, I would say a little bit harder, definitely. Um, but um, also the volume can be really significant. So typically with insane volume products, sometimes they can be a little harder to license. Um, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, 
you know, it is the case with like a packaging product where they're going to sell like bazillions of units or things like that. Um, let's see. Melvin said, hey, Andrew, much respect to you. Thank you, Melvin. If I build the machine that makes a new product and makes the machine affordable, can I license the machine to a producer? Absolutely, you can. And, you know, you can license the machine. You could have also a provisional patent on the method of manufacturing, all that. Most inventors don't have those skills, um, but that is definitely something that you could license without a doubt. Um, now, if a company can make an existing product with existing machinery, that's always better. We're just going to modify the existing machinery a bit. If they need to go out and spend a quarter million dollars on a new machine, is that going to be a harder deal to close? Yes. But is the product intriguing enough to make it worth it is always the question, right? Um, Antonio, hi, Andrew. If one, if one licenses without a patent, what should the contract say and what is being licensed? It is called know-how or just a description of the product idea. So it's called a grant of licensing. That could be dependent on a patent, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be on the product itself and the know-how. You're right. Um, and a lot of uh, patent attorneys will, will tell inventors that you can't do that. Well, I have students all day long that are doing that. Companies like our student, we always say file a provisional. Companies like, we don't want to do a patent. You can do it if you want, but we'll pay you royalties. And you don't need to put the grant of licensing doesn't need to be 10 minutes on a patent. This perception that you can't license things that you don't have a patent on is just utter BS. Um, but you, you don't know if it's going to be important to a company. So it's always worth it to file that $75 provisional. And some will care about it. Some won't care about it at all. Some will be like, yeah, we want the window dressing and others are obsessed with it. And they're all, it's a wide range. Most of them are right in the middle. Yeah, that'd be nice to say patent. Okay. And you ask for an advance on royalties. You take the money they give you, you give it to your patent attorney, you upgrade your provisional to full utility. And, um, and now there's no money out of your pocket if you can pull that off, which you quite often can't, or at least you can get some sort of advance to help pay for the patent. Um, but the patent always stays in your name. I think we talked about that last week. Um, uh, Ray Ray said, cool, that's what I thought. And possibly companies might have extra money to close out um, their fiscal year. Okay. Um, you're welcome, Ray Ray. Uh, oh. uh, Leaf saying, hey, Andrew, sorry for my other message. Didn't go through. If I have an alumni at EDU, I guess he was at a university at some point, email, my first last name, email, which should I use to conduct business or make an, I should I make a new one? I don't know. Um, I think that if you're using a university.edu email, it either makes it look like you're a college student or I see people that want to brag about their alma mater, like they went to Stanford or they went to Harvard or something like that. Um, I think it's a little weird. I would just use your first name, last name designs at Gmail is what I would do. Um, but I, I think that using a university address, it might make you look, you might be 45. It might make you look younger than you are. I, I don't know if it really makes a difference. I think you don't want to have your email be happybeach99 at Hotmail. That's not professional, right? Um, so definitely don't do that. The .edu, I've never had that question. Um, I'd say if you're a business, you know, your email signature, 
Bob Smith, Bob Smith Designs, Bob Smith Designs at Gmail. You got your phone number. Everything looks like a company. That's all you have to do to create your corporate identity is what I just said. So why make it a .edu? I'd make it, you know, your first name, last name, and designs just to get it done. You know, and then I think that would be better. That's my opinion. Um, do I think it's going to hurt you? Probably not, but that's what I would do. Okay. Um, Mike, thank you, Mike. You, sir, are a champion. I got a, I got a trophy and a medal. Thank you. I appreciate that. A trophy, a medal icon. Um, Jeff says, if anyone can submit and they won't look at it until you file a non-provisional, then isn't it easy to accidentally infringe? If infringement occurred after you licensed the product, are you liable? Um, okay, so let's break this down. Um, sounds like he's a little, maybe, let's figure it out and see if he's too worried and let's, let's talk about this. If anyone can submit, they won't look at it until you file a non-provisional, um, then isn't it easy to accidentally infringe? Guys, if you, if there is a company that says we're not okay with a provisional patent, we're not okay with patent pending status, you have to have an issued patent, run screaming, that company is archaic, okay? They're not open to your ideas. Any company that says you have to have an issued patent. I've had inventors tell me like, oh, I'm going to go get a patent now because I encountered one company that said I would have an issued patent. That's ridiculous. That's so, so you're going to file a patent sit around waiting one to three years for it to issue and then show it, it might not even be relevant anymore. That's not the type of company that is moving forward fast enough that you would ever want to work with, okay? Um, so the other part of the question is, if infringement occurred after you license the product, are you liable? Okay, so when you sign a licensing agreement, sometimes it'll have an indemnity. And usually this is the way it works. They indemnify you against like, let's say they make a product and they accidentally put lead in it and a child licks it and dies or, or gets sick or something like that, you're not liable for some manufacturing defect or something they did wrong, okay? I've never, ever had one of our students get sued by a consumer, let alone a company ever that I'm aware of. Um, but, and then usually you indemnify them against um, any potential infringement. And so, but realistically, could you really do that? I mean, so when you get in the weeds of a licensing deal, and it looks like you're going to sign it and they have an indemnity clause in there that you need to identify them against any patent infringement. That's a good time to do a deeper patent search to see if you're infringing anything. Right. And so that is something you want to look at. And that is something our students are concerned about sometimes. Have I ever, ever once see it be a problem? No. Could it be? Yes. But I would always do a really good patent search before you sign a contract if they want you to identify them against any patent infringement. That's one of those things that everybody's like, oh, that's what it's all about. That's really important. No, having a good sell sheet and knowing how to reach out to companies, that's where the money's at, not worrying about stupid stuff like this. Now, it's not stupid. It's it's valid. It's a valid point. But people focus on the wrong things. The, the, um, the weight they give things is all wrong. So I'm just helping you guys out with the weight you're going to give this or that. Okay. Um, Alex says, but still my hardware construction products, pretty simple and not on the market, easy to produce is a 3d model, a good move or prototype glue and sticks needed. Okay. So Alex's product is a hardware construction product. I love it. I love it when 
when people that are in industry, like in the construction industry, or you're a professional chef, or you're a nurse or a doctor, and you come up with stuff because you know what's needed. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, but are, are construction products a little bit harder than a kitchen product? Yeah, I'd say yes. I wouldn't say they're in a really difficult category, but a little bit harder. But if it has value, um, then I would go for it. Um, so, you know, the, the hardware guys, they're kind of like, you know, matter of fact, like, yeah, show me, you know, so you could glue something together and maybe it doesn't really work and it falls apart, but the way you videotape it, it looks like it works and you know, they can make it work. You're just having a hard time making it work. That's okay. I've never had a company get mad at one of our students for that. Or maybe you just have a virtual prototype and they look at it and go, yeah, or they have some questions for you. Great reason to engage. And then you'll talk to them about how, how it would work. And you tell them and go, well, I'm not, I'm not that great at making prototypes. This is how it works. And they're like, oh, okay, that gives us enough information to go get some quotes. Yeah, we're satisfied. Or if you're not, if they're not, well, then it lights a fire under your butt. And they're like, well, we don't want to make a prototype on this. Can you make it? You know, and sometimes they'll do that. But a lot of times you can get them to do it. You know, I think we had somebody else earlier here that was talking about how the company made a prototype. So maybe you just get them to do it. So to feel like you, you can't approach companies without having everything all in a row, that's a big, big mistake. Um, uh, Mike said, it's because of you I joined the course, man. Oh, cool. Thank you, Mike. And what you do for us made that decision easy. Cool. I like that, Mike. That's, I appreciate your, your help. Uh, we're just about being honest and transparent. So if you guys, um, I would check out InventRight and click on Contact Us if you want to book a call with Sylvia or Dana. They're super friendly. Might be like, I'm not ready to do anything right now, Andrew, but you can talk to them about how we help, how we coach and mentor people. You can just go to InventRight too, and you can check us out there, check out our services page, but also go to InventRight and check out our, um, our free resources page. If you're on your computer, it's a little different on the phone because the menu is different. But if you're on the computer, you'll see in the upper right-hand corner a big blue button, free resources. Sign up for that. We've got a lot of free resources. And you guys can do me a favor. I spent a whole hour answering your questions for free. Please, down below, subscribe. Click on the notification button. Give it a thumbs up. I forget if you can give a thumbs up to a live stream or not. I forget. Um, but And then watch more of our videos. That's the way you can say thank you to me for taking an hour of my time to answer your questions. So um, thank you, Alex. Thank you, My Two Cents. Thank you, everybody. And, um, and I remind everybody to take care and keep inventing. See you guys. Bye.